you have to remember back then the Foreign Office was such a different organization. When you looked up the ladder, the majority of senior people were white men, the majority of whom had gone to Oxford or Cambridge, and the majority of those Oxbridge graduates had gone to a tiny handful of our best public schools. So as a young Eurasian girl who hadn't been to university, there weren't people that looked like me or had had a similar background to me. But I think that first boss, when I told him that I was going to try and give it a go from the bottom and work my way up, I was lucky perhaps, and sometimes in life I think you have luck, decided to take an interest and encourage me and start to share what he knew and to set me off in the right way and give me opportunities to do things other than the clerical work that I'd mm. been recruited for. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. A career diplomat with a wide range of experience, both in policy and service delivery, Vicky Trudell is the current High Commissioner of the United Kingdom to Australia, having taken up her posting in April 2019. Vicky previously held the same role in Malaysia and also served as the first woman British High Commissioner to New Zealand and Samoa and Governor of Pitcairn. Before this, Vicky was British Deputy High Commissioner in Mumbai, heading the UK's Western India team from 2006 to 2010. A Eurasian, born in Malaysia, to a Cantonese mother and a father of French-Dutch ancestry, Vicky's family moved to the UK when she was a child. It was during a year out before hoping to go on to university that she joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in the late 70s and never looked back. A distinguished career that has navigated natural disasters, major terrorist incidents and not to mention a global pandemic, on a personal level Vicky is passionate about youth engagement as well as women's and children's rights. A believer that leadership requires compassion, collaboration, confidence and courage. Vicky was made a member of the Royal Victorian Order in 1989 and a companion of the Order of St Michael and St George in 2010. She won the 2009 Asian Women of Achievement Award for Public Service and received an honorary degree from Reading University in 2016. Vicky is also chair of the Women of the Future Southeast Asia Judging Panel. I was born in Malaysia in a town called Ipoh in Perak, about two and a half, three hours north of Kuala Lumpur. So I grew up to a Eurasian father with Dutch burger ancestry and a Singapore Chinese mum. My mother was one of nine, so my childhood 
was one with lots of aunties and uncles and literally dozens of cousins on that side of the family and my dad's family were a little bit smaller he was one of five but most of his siblings had left Malaysia and were either in the UK or Australia as it happens but childhood in those early years in Malaysia was a typical Malaysian kids time family friends socializing uh, when i went to school i was a typical malaysian schoolgirl wearing my blue pinafore dress my friends were ethnic chinese malay indian fellow eurasians like me and it was sort of you know tropical it was hot and that's i think what defined my childhood then we moved we migrated to the uk and then i was put into boarding school at the age of eight so completely different having grown up in that sort of malaysian environment and being in the uk going to a boarding school wearing a tie which i didn't quite understand why i wore a tie <laughs> to school and continued to pursue my education. I remember the first time we got a message saying that my parents were going to take us out for the weekend. And I think we'd been in boarding school perhaps about a month before that happened, but it seemed infinite. So those weekends going out with my parents, going home, uh, home then was a town called Bexel on Sea in Sussex oh. on the south coast. So completely different to Malaysia. But then I think, you know, actually being in a boarding school, it was very international in its environment, which I think would have made it easier transitioning into life in the UK than had I gone to a local comprehensive, for example. Was it a then, bit of a, a then, shock to the system then to kind of come, like you say, from such a big family community feel in Malaysia to come here? And then the boarding school environment is obviously the kind of antithesis of that. Was that a big adjustment for you? I, do you know, I took to it quite easily, like a duck to water. I was the younger of two sisters. So I had my elder sister who kind of looked out for me and looked after me. And maybe it was just my character or temperament. You know, I made friends in the new school easily and just embraced life and the sort of extracurricular stuff that we did at school. So for me, I adapted quite easily. It was only later when we were fully grown adults and I was comparing notes with my sister that I realized how much she cushioned me and looked after me and life was quite different. I think she found it being two and a half years older, perhaps with that greater sense of awareness, it was more difficult and her sense of responsibility for me as well. So it wasn't too bad for me. It was difficult for my sister, but it wasn't too bad for me because I had her. And you said, I mean, you said you enjoyed school. Were you a good student? Were you quite diligent, hardworking? Or did you enjoy the kind of social side too? What were you like? I don't think I was that studious. There were subjects I loved, but they were largely because of the teachers. So geography was my favorite subject and we had a brilliant teacher who I found quite inspirational. I think the subjects I enjoyed or the teachers I responded to were the best subjects that I did. And 
my sister, as I said, was studious, was very gifted academically. And I think when you follow an older sibling who sets the benchmark, you always feel under pressure to meet it. And that's perhaps was what drove me academically that, you know, if Judy got these O levels mm. at these grades, that's the name of my elder sister, then Vicky had to at least come close. So my sister went to university and when I was finishing my A-levels, I actually wanted to take a year off. And I remember when I told my parents, I don't want to go straight to university. I actually want to take a year off, like a lot of these British girls do, um, and travel a little bit. I think my parents were quite okay about it. They said, fine, but if you think we're just going to underwrite that, that you have another thing coming. <laughs> and they said, you know, if you earn some money, work for a few months, and then we'll see how much you've got, and therefore how much we'll top you up to be able to go and travel. And that's how I ended up in the Foreign Office. Not by any intention to pursue a career in the Foreign Office, but I applied for two jobs. One was the Foreign Office in civil service or the public sector, and one was with Barclays Bank at the very bottom rung of the ladder, sort of clerical work. And when I was offered the two jobs, the Barclays job was in Brighton and the Foreign Office job was in London. I thought, Brighton, London, where <laughs> was it more fun? So I chose London and the Foreign Office. And here I am all these years later. So I never actually took that year off. I never went to university. I joined the Foreign Office when I was 18. Wow. So is your parents instilling that work ethic kind of you can go and do that. You can go and be frivolous or, you know, just find out more about yourself for a year. But you need to find a job to help fund it. That was the catalyst really for you. Then That's right. Employment. Um, so Dad said to me, you know, you can go and get a job working in a shop or in a pub. But what you ought to do, because it's a good experience for you is to apply for a professional sort of job and go through a recruitment process because that will be good life experience for you and working in a sort of office environment he thought would also be good so i think i went through those recruitment exercises being interviewed and so forth and i think after a few weeks in the foreign office meeting people Know, only two three years older than me about to go off on their first overseas posting meeting colleagues that were coming back talking about their careers it dawned on me that instead of having a few months off in my gap year I could actually have a career of travel living and working in other countries and I talked to my first boss at the time and he said to me, but why transition now into the office? Why don't you go off to university and come in as a graduate entrant? Because, you know, you'll progress further in your career as a graduate entrant. And I thought about it and I thought, well, I've got the foot in the door now. I'm 18. If I can get that first promotion when I'm about 22 23 i'm not far off the age of a graduate entrant and frankly 
at that point, I will have had three, four years experience. Part of this was informed by conversations with my parents as well, who I suspect were disappointed that I was not going to go to university and follow my sister who'd sort of set the trail. And they did say to me, if you want to do this, then learn, apply yourself and find those early opportunities to shine, but be serious about it. So that's what I did. And I went off on my first overseas posting when I was just 21. And uh, it was two years in Islamabad. And when I got back after two years, I did an internal competition and got my first promotion. And I thought, right, I'm at the same grade as graduate entrance. And really it's all down to merit and how I succeed. So there you are. And you have to remember back then, the Foreign Office was such a different organization. When you looked up the ladder, the majority of senior people were white men, the majority of whom had gone to Oxford or Cambridge. And the majority of those Oxbridge graduates had gone to a tiny handful of our best public schools. So as a young Eurasian girl who hadn't been to university, there weren't people that looked like me or had had a similar background to me. But I think that first boss, when I told him that I was going to try and give it a go from the bottom and work my way up, I was lucky perhaps, and sometimes in life I think you have luck, decided to take an interest and encourage me and start to share what he knew and to set me off in the right way and give me opportunities to do things other than the clerical work that I'd Mm. been recruited for. And you've gone on to have such an incredible career with the Foreign Office. Was being an underdog, as you kind of put it, did that put a fire in your belly to kind of prove people wrong or just to prove how good you knew you were or how how were you motivated because it is very inspiring to hear but it'd be good to know how you felt at the time i think when i got back to london after that first overseas posting to pakistan to islamabad i was very conscious of the fact that i wasn't a graduate entrant and that there was some sense that you weren't a fast streamer, because that's what we called our graduate entrance. So I did want to prove myself. I also felt that you had to show more, shine a bit more, everything you do, show an interest, volunteer for anything that was going. Even during my time in Islamabad, it wasn't just doing the day job well, but if there were opportunities that came up, putting myself forward to do them because how else are you going to get on? It's not just doing your day job well, it's trying to show the extra that you can do. So that was a motivation for me. And I think getting that first promotion sort of relaxed me. But I think that desire to learn, to look at the best examples around me and to take some of that on board. So I think that's always been something about me is to try to find that extra do that bit more that raises you above the average and you've now been posted 
all across the world. Across all the work you've done, is there any one thing in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? Well, I've been working as a career diplomat for a very long time now. There are moments in your career that do stand out where you know you helped to make a difference. And I suppose I would pick two examples. When I was Deputy High Commissioner heading our team in Western India in Mumbai, it was when we were really trying to attract Indian investment into the UK, attracting foreign investment into the UK to create jobs, to save jobs, to you know, enhance our economy. And that was a particular focus. So when Jaguar Land Rover, when Ford put Jaguar Land Rover up for sale, you have to remember the historical context of this. It wasn't long after MG Rover was put up for sale and was bought by the Chinese and MG and Rover ceased to be cars manufactured in the UK. So the government was worried about something similar happening to Jaguar Land Rover. So they put a message out to a number of our posts overseas where there were potential car manufacturers who might have been interested in acquiring Jaguar and Land Rover. So the message arrived on my desk. Of course, it's a commercial deal, but the thing is to go out and find out who might be interested and build a relationship with the key message that if you are interested, the British government is interested in you and also interested in your intentions. We welcome good investment, but investment that secures our jobs, investments that go in to develop the car company and actually to see it expand and become even more successful. So I was deeply involved in that process. There were two Indian companies headquartered in Mumbai. I happened to know both their chairman very well. So I was able to go and chat to them. One was Ratan Tata of Tata Group. So shepherding that relationship, and of course at that time we didn't know whether or not Tata Motors would be the successful bidder uh, and buy out Ford. But I think that relationship the sort of conversations that I had with Ratan Tata and the chief executive of Tata Motors, a gentleman called Ravi Kant, to support them to really convey where the British government was at, what we hoped they would do in terms of that investment, and the consequence of landing that investment into the UK was transformational for Jaguar Land Rover. I think at the time they only employed about 12,000 people. And today it is, I think, over 30, 40,000 people. The whole supply chain into it. And most importantly, the conversations that I had with them about their investment in R&D. And I do remember a meeting in Ratantata's office where he was showing me some of the cars that they were thinking of developing. One turned out to be the Evoque, one turned out to be the new aluminium monocoque for the Range Rover or Land Rover range. And he was even talking then about electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, and supporting them at a time when we had the global financial crisis. 
And for a year or so, the bottom fell out of the luxury car market. So the story isn't so much about the acquisition, but actually working closely with them, linking them with the government in that difficult first 18 months, two years of their ownership of the car market in order to bring it through that period. So that is one that I'm proud of because it's tangible and you can see the difference that it has made to our economy. The other, I suppose, is the cluster of work that I have done around major crises in places that I have been. So the Mumbai terrorist attacks happened in November 2008. The Christchurch earthquake when I was High Commissioner to New Zealand in February 2011. And of course, I guess this year with the global pandemic of COVID and the tens of thousands of Brits who found themselves stuck here in Australia. All of those is about being there to support our British citizens who find themselves in extremis from dreadful terrorist attacks to awful earthquakes to global pandemic, helping people to get home, looking after people who are in distress and making sure that we do all we can to get them home safely. I guess are two parts of the job that I'm proud of. But of course, when I've been High Commissioner here in Australia, in New Zealand and Malaysia, it is also about building the relationship with that host government on the issues that matter to us, where we collaborate on the big global agenda issues and trying to make sure that our bilateral relationship is as good as it can be. And I guess the responsibility of having those big load-bearing relationships, whether with ministers or senior business people, or indeed for Britain to be connected across civil society in each of the countries that I have served. It's interesting, isn't it? It's very informative to hear you talk about the legislative and diplomatic considerations, but particularly with the pandemic, it's been emotional and people are distressed and they do naturally get angry or you know they're just frustrated that they want something to happen that's not happening the emotional side is that something that you have to try and compartmentalize or is that just part and parcel of what you do I think of course you're going to face a lot of distress particularly in these crisis scenarios and people will get upset and I think you have to be compassionate when they lash out because if you represent the British government someone sometimes need, you know, they just feel frustrated. You can't ever take it personally. You just have to understand they're not in a good place. They didn't ask to be in the situation they are in. And you have to sort of turn the other cheek and know in your heart and in your mind and with your team that you are doing the best you can possibly do by people. So, you know, in the Mumbai terrorist attacks, those who were injured and were rushed to hospital, making sure we could get alongside them quickly, likewise in Christchurch, dealing with people who'd seen the most awful things in the most distressing situation, giving them succor and comfort, and sometimes just being there to look after them, to give them reassurance. Here in Australia over the last six months, it's been different because 
we're in lockdown, you can't travel, you can't physically see people. Of course, I have a big network here with teams in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. Our frontline staff in those cities were able to connect with people. And our top priority was to keep the commercial airlines flying. I think when Australia closed its borders, there were 118,000 British people here. So a few charter flights were not going to get them all home. The only way to get the volume and the seats on planes was to work very closely with commercial airlines to keep flying routes. So working with colleagues in Doha, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Singapore and Hong Kong to keep those major transit hubs in the main airlines flying was our number one priority. And when we stopped monitoring the numbers, we, then you analyze who your 118,000 are. And we figured out about 60,000 need to get home. And I'm pleased to say that by about mid-July, 60,000 had got home on commercial routes that we had managed through negotiation, through influence and lobbying, leveraging our ministers in the UK to make the necessary phone calls. And of course, my counterparts in those capitals working the system there. But it's hugely satisfying work. And, you know, we always reflect and think what we do if it happens again and how can we do it better. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved? Well, I was Deputy High Commissioner heading our team in Mumbai at the time. And my deputy had been to, I think, an event and was told about Pinky Lilani and that she was keen to connect with uh, me. And I, I think I was on a trip out of town at the time. Anyway, I was given her contact details and I contacted Pinky and she said she had an idea of bringing an all-female delegation out to India and she wondered if I was interested in helping. Funnily enough, the year before, I had actually in my previous job, the one before I went to Mumbai, taken an all-female delegation of northwest of England businesswomen out to India. So I had form on this front. <laughs> and I said to Pinky, I'd love to do that because I observe often when trade missions and delegations come out, they are predominantly male. Nothing wrong with men. I love them dearly. <laughs> but they arrive, they just want to do the business. And what I observe is that they don't give themselves time to understand how a country ticks, to get under its skill, skin, to understand its different dynamics. So if she would trust me, what I would prefer to design was a sort of study tour. When the women can really see the different dynamics, have their emotions and their senses challenged, and then after that week's experience, they will have a much better idea of what they do or don't want to do in India and how they would approach the country if they were businesswomen. So we went ahead and planned this. And then I think in between that, I was back in London on a visit and it coincided with the um, sister initiative that Pinky also initiated and is the founder of, which is the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. 
So I went along to that one that coincided with a visit to London. And within the next year, we had our all-female delegation led by Pinky. And we did another two all-female delegations to Mumbai in subsequent years. One when I was still Deputy High Commissioner there, and then one when I was High Commissioner in Wellington, because in Wellington, I'd got to know a network of senior New Zealand women, and I had this concept that we should bring the New Zealand women and the British women together in Mumbai and do something that had three countries involved. And that's how my collaboration with Pinky, Women of the Future, and Asian Women of Achievements began and continues to this day. So when I was in KL, I knew that Pinky was interested in developing an international sort of front. So I said to her, why don't we launch Women of the Future Southeast Asian chapter? And uh, again, she brought a female delegation out to Kale, and I said, on our last night, why don't we do a soft launch at an event? Because if we launch something and we say we're going to deliver it in the next year, we will. So I think it was 2017, we launched Women of the Future Southeast Asia, and Pinky asked me to chair the judging panel. And we're now in the third year of albeit virtual this year, of Women of the Future Southeast Asia. And I think, you know, for me, given the privilege of the job and the roles that I've had, I just have really great networks. And if you can't leverage your networks to do something exciting and interesting for all the right reasons, to add real value and develop new fronts of British engagement and value, so I just think if you have networks, their value is in how you can bring other people into it and create new networks. Absolutely. I have some quick fire questions for you just to finish, if that's okay. What would you describe as your greatest success? Gosh, um, succeeding in my diplomatic career, despite the odds at the very beginning. But I think my greatest success is probably, within that, the most amazing networks that help people to connect. And your greatest failure? Looking after my own health. (laughs) Bit of (laughs) self-care. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the mantra of the women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Well, my success in my career depends on building relationships and having trust at the heart of those relationships. But it is also about our front line and how we serve the people that we serve. And I don't think you can succeed unless you have kindness. And for me, I would translate that into compassion and human understanding in order to be successful. And you can never do anything on your own. The only way to succeed is with your team, with partners, with networks. So collaboration is absolutely fundamental to that. Is there anything that scares you? Um, Not really. I think through my life, the things that I've done, the things that I've seen, I don't really get scared. 
The most fearful I have been was when I suffered some ill health recently. So in Mumbai, we were right in the heart of a terrorist attack, literally bullets flying by. I remember doing an interview for the BBC, actually, standing in front of the Taj Hotel on day two of that crisis. And a bullet flew by and we thought maybe we're standing in a dangerous spot. We better move and do the interview somewhere else. Or in Christchurch, when the aftershocks and the sort of rolling earth beneath your feet and the buildings shaking, I didn't feel particularly scared because I had a focus on what I was doing. But I think when I suffered a stroke a couple of months ago, lying in A&E, wondering if I would come out of it, uh, was the first time I felt my own mortality. Mm. But actually thinking about my life and my purpose and if I recovered refocusing and doing good things and really focusing on kindness collaboration and making a difference that's what's pulled me through we all have one life if you don't make the most of it if you don't lead it well you don't try to make a difference in whatever way you can and then you really should have nothing to be fearful of it's very inspiring. What's left on your to-do list? Um, from a work point of view here in Australia, I want to complete my four years here, knowing that we've delivered a gold standard free trade agreement with Australia. That would be a very important thing for our country. And I think success for me is actually continuing to have a great marriage and a wonderful husband who supports me. And that means making time for him too. My success is in part because he's always stood behind me, been my best champion, and you can't take that for granted. So in the years to come, just having a fantastic life with him. Vicky, it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much. I think it's gone nine o'clock where you are. So thank you for staying thank up you. to speak to me. I really, yeah, it's such an honour and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.